You're listening to the Connecticut Real Estate Edge podcast, your source for tips and tricks on building wealth through real estate in Connecticut. You will get the best techniques from leading local experts in real estate and lending. Now, here's your host, Robert Weinberg. Good Saturday morning to everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge podcast along with Rob Weinberg. I'm Gary Byron. So glad to have you on board. Rob, how you been there, brother? Pretty good. How about you? Ah, man. You know, you know, I, I, I do my best to hang in there over here. You know what it's like. It's tough. Uh, how was your week? Good, good. Starting to see things pick up a little bit here going into uh, what hopefully will be some nicer weather in the coming months, right? One can hope. We're, we're barely at Valentine's Day, a couple of days from now. I know. Anybody well, buying any homes for their significant other? <laughs> I, ha- I haven't necessarily seen that. But, uh, That's a hell of a gift. Yeah. You know, it, it, I feel like the winter started pretty slow mm. from a weather standpoint, not many storms and stuff. And then all of a sudden we got into the mm. end of December, early January, and like there was a bunch of storms in a row. And now, you know, ice and this and that. I'm just, you know, I'm from Florida, so I'm just ready to... <sighs> Get into the nicer weather Can't here. Can't say I blame you. Not too often you see people moving from Florida to Connecticut, but that's been the weather pattern the last few years now. Um, it's like it, winter starts later, and it's and, and consequently it ends a little later. That, then when, from what I remember, when I was a kid, it would start, you know, like in December, and right. it, and it runs yeah, through all late sorts March. Of weird but now it starts happening yeah. in the in the uh, weather patterns and things. Global warming, right? All that climate change, yeah, is that what they call it? Now? I guess so. I um, I, speaking of of which, is does the weather? I don't want to. No, I'm not asking if you, if weather has anything to do with having open houses or having more mm-hmm. homes sold. But is there a time of year that's more popular that you're oh, that yeah. you're busier? Let's say, are you more busy in winter or in summer? What what time of the, year? Always, no matter what is going on with interest rates or the market. Well, be- spring, summer. Is definitely the busiest okay. time of year. Because I talked to an accountant summer. who says, you know, from January to April, I tell my family, I'll see you in May. I talked to a guy who does Medicare, you know, and the open enrollment from October through December. And, and then they've got, you know, a part C in in, in January. So he, he's busy from October through January. So it seems like people have busier times of year depending on their trade. Right. What, uh, for mortgages, though. I would say like March through September okay. or maybe even April. Uh, and the reason why is the seasonality we've done an entire episode on yeah, and did. just the way that weather works with real estate and moving and buying and selling. So that's big. The values of properties obviously are better at certain times of year, which is a big deal when you're looking to refinance or tap equity. Um, and usually, you know, fall, then we get into the holidays with winter coming and things just drop off a little bit. People aren't looking to move as much at those points. Maybe we can this, this morning talk about like real estate investing, but for the beginner. Talking- I think it'd be great. We've talked a lot about real estate investing and buying multiple properties and all that, but I've had inquiries from people that say, hey, I just own one house and I want to buy another, you know, just like starting that portfolio. Or I own no houses and I want to buy like a rental property. Uh, you know, I still live with my parents maybe, or I live with a significant other and I just want to, I know real estate's a way to create wealth and I just want to get my toe in the water there. You don't have to start with a huge apartment building or this big portfolio. <laughs> you can actually just start with like a single 
single-family home or a multifamily home, which we'll talk about. All right, so then why is real estate such an attractive investment versus other alternatives like stocks, bonds, or index funds, or things yeah, like that? so uh, that's a really common question because when you're looking at investing money, you want to know what returns are you're getting and where are you going to get the best bang for your buck, sure, right? Sure. Why do so many millionaires and financially successful people choose real estate to put like a huge sum of their wealth, a huge percentage in? And I think the number one answer is very unique to real estate: rental income. Like, where else can you get rental income? Sure, stocks, you get dividends. But when you really look at on a percentage basis, like rental income coming in monthly versus a stock dividend, you're going to get way more bang for your buck on the rental income. So that's a huge advantage of real estate is that cash flow, because usually people pay their rent every month. So that means you have money coming in every month to help pay the mortgage, expenses, things like that. The second thing is that Real estate is hedged for inflation. When you look over many, many decades, when inflation goes up, rents go up, the prices of homes go up, like all these things are interconnected. So you may be pissed off that your gas is going up. You can't do much about that, but you can do that with real estate because you can raise rents when inflation is going up. So there's a hedge there that you as a landlord, you as a property owner can actually do something about to help combat that inflation, which obviously is just running rampant now. Anybody knows about inflation and what it's done to your wallet. The next thing's mm. appreciation. You know, this is something that shares with stocks or index funds is that appreciation is what you buy it at today versus what it's worth in the future. So if you buy a house for 200000 and a year from now it's worth 250000 then on paper you have a $50,000 appreciation. If you buy a stock for $7 a share and next year it's worth $8 a share, then there's appreciation there or capital gains that you that you have there. So real estate does give you that. Now in some markets, real estate can go down just like other things. But historically speaking, it's pretty stable, you know, over many hmm. decades, which is very, very different than the stock market where you could see huge drops in one day. Like you're not going to see that in a day or a week in real estate. It's more looking yeah, over many years. Rob, 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 Rob. There's, there's, come on. Not everything is so rosy. T tell me about some of the biggest. There's got to be hurdles here that the, the beginner investor, investor well, there's, needs to there overcome. Are, I mean, um, everything has its I would hurdles. say before we talk about the hurdles, though, I have to also mention the tax advantages of real estate because there's so many. You don't have any tax advantages for stocks or <laughs> right. bonds. At least most bonds don't have tax advantages. So, like, you're not only... You know, you're you're making some money from like stocks and bonds, but then you're also paying higher taxes on them than you would with rental income and other things, all else being equal. Well, so there's property taxes, you still gotta pay as there's the property taxes, but I'm talking about taxes on your actual profit to the government. And there's a lot more write-offs that you have on your tax returns. Like your schedule E of your tax return is all about rental property and those type of uh investments that you have in real estate. And there's a lot of write-offs. You can look at a schedule E of a federal tax and see a whole ton of lists of all the write-offs, you do actually, yes, you pay taxes, but you also get to write off taxes. Yes, you pay home insurance, but you also get to write off home insurance. Again, on in real estate investing, on rental property is what I'm talking about. So as far as biggest hurdles for beginner real estate investors, to answer your question, the biggest hurdle by far is going to be finding the money to put down. That's always the biggest thing because- 
people know that when you're getting a rental property, especially, you need a big down payment. We'll talk about specific amounts uh, here, but it's usually going to be a lot more than a single family or like an owner-occupied type of property. So finding the money for the down payment is definitely going to be the biggest yeah. issue. And where do you do that? So let's talk about solutions to that right up front. So number one is if you already own a home you've lived in for a little bit, Cash out refinancing. Look at it. You might be able to get more equity out of your home right now to put down on the next one than you ever thought possible, especially with the home values going up so much. So many people listening right now, Gary, are sitting on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. They haven't even really considered that they could take that money and buy a rental property with it. You can. You just need someone to guide you and show you these strategies. Retirement or 401k loans, those are huge because you've got money sitting. You've been putting in your employers, maybe been matching money for many years or decades. You could have huge amounts just sitting in that uh, 401k or investment or retirement portfolio where you can get a loan against it. And typically, they're very favorable terms. That could be a great place to come up with money to put down on a rental property or your first real estate investment. One I don't really recommend that often, especially to new investors, but if I didn't talk about it, I wouldn't be doing my job here today educating everyone, is the home equity line of credit. A lot of my more savvy multimillionaire types that have a lot of properties already and are very astute with their personal finances, there is a right and, and a, a good place for that home equity line of credit because it allows you to take money and borrow and pay it back and do that multiple times. So for the right person, that home equity line of credit can be a good idea. Just be careful because those are adjustable rates. So they can fluctuate. And the last one I'll give you is a secured line of credit. This is one that's seldom known and, and little used, and it's going to entail getting a line of credit against an investment portfolio. So you might have a brokerage account with Fidelity or Schwab or one of these big brokerages, and a lot of them actually offer a line of credit where you can get a credit line secured by the account you have with them, and that can be used for any purpose. And in this case, you could use that without having to sell out on your stocks and bonds and all that and use that to put down on another property. All right. Now, t talk about some investment mortgages and in, in the different requirements that are needed. Right. So we've spent so much time in, in several episodes talking about owner-occupied properties and first-time buyer loans and that sort of thing. Right. But I really want to shift here in today's discussion, and I want to talk specifically about rental property mortgages, investment property mortgages, because it's a whole different ballgame when you're talking about not living there as your primary home. So first of all, um, one of the great things about it is that you can get credit for the potential rental income that you're going to receive. So even if you haven't gotten rental income from the property before, because you haven't owned it, we'll get a schedule on the appraisal report that'll show what the market rent is and what the property's rented for now. And the underwriters can use up to 75% of that rental income towards your qualification. Now, we don't have time to go into the guidelines. Sometimes if you have no experience as a landlord, they won't give you credit for the entire amount of rental income or the whole 75%. But especially if you do have more than one rental property, they'll give you more credit for that if you're an experienced landlord. Even if you're not, though, it will help you to qualify for the mortgage because it will give you some additional income flow that we can show on your loan application to the underwriter to help it look on paper a little more favorable for you to afford the mortgage on the property that you're buying. So that's one uh, 
you know, one big thing that I think will help people that are worried about getting an investment mortgage. The next thing that you want to be aware of is the down payments. We talked earlier about the fact that investment properties can be much bigger down payments. How much bigger? Well, we're talking about 20 to 25% down. That's what you really want to be comfortable with when you're getting an investment property mortgage. Single family, you're going to be more on the 20%. I've even seen some investors that'll do 15% down on, on a single family investment, but more often than not, it's 20% down. If you're looking at like a two unit or a four unit, anything in between, you're going to need to put 25% down for a conventional mortgage. If you look at the prices of homes right now, especially multifamily, and you start calculating putting 25% down and paying closing costs, you can see it takes preparation. It takes the strategies we're talking about. It's not just wake up one day and decide you want to buy a rental property and cut a check. For most people, there's going to be a period of time where they're going to have to step back and really strategize with financial advisor, a mortgage advisor, a real real estate pro, and really get that game plan and play for how much money they're going to need so they can get positioned. I have clients that come to me three to six months ahead when they're buying investment properties because they may say, hey, I've got 20 grand but I know that's not enough. I just don't know how much more I need. And we can set them up with that. The other thing is higher credit. If you think you're going to get a investment property loan with a 610 credit score, you, you know, unless it's from your Uncle Joe, nobody else is going to give you a mortgage <laughs> on that. Conventional financing typically is going to start at a 620 credit score. And that is the standard type of financing we use for these investment properties. So I will tell you, you know, 620 is kind of minimum barrier for entry. But at a 620 low down, you're not going to be getting a very good interest rate. You're going to have to pay a lot of extra points and fees. So more so than an owner-occupied loan, an investment mortgage, you want to have that credit as high as possible. Ideally, above 700. In a perfect world, 740 is really the sweet spot. When you can get above 740, uh, you're going to get some good terms on the, you know, as far as at least relatively, you're going to get good terms versus someone with a lower credit score once you're in that echelon. The last thing I want to mention that a lot of people are not prepared for when they get an investment property mortgage, especially their first one, is that... These are higher risk mortgages, right? Because you're not living there as the actual owner of the home. So it's going to have a higher degree of risk for the person giving you the mortgage for the investor than it would if you were living in the home. Why? The reason why is because you need a roof over your head. So if things hit the fan and you can't pay your mortgage and you have two, one on your primary home, one on your investment, which one are you going to let go first? Yeah, but, yeah, but that's just another uh, dwelling for income. I, I agree, but if, what if your tenant didn't pay you that month? Yeah. Well, you, you've got to squirrel some money away. You got to. You, you do, and that's why you want to have reserves, and most of these investment loans require that you have like some financial reserves after closing. But I want the uh, potential investors listening right now to understand that an investment property mortgage, because it's higher risk like we're talking about, it's going to have higher interest rates than a owner-occupied loan. I've seen it even as much as a percent, percent and a half higher. And the last thing is the fees. There are going to be where I usually don't recommend paying points and fees on an owner-occupied refinance or home purchase, especially right now on a investment property. 
in most cases, you have to pay points and fees. There's no way to get a loan without those points and fees. So it is normal and customary, Gary, for someone to have to pay a point or two points just to get the loan because of the way the mortgage pricing works. So if I live in Newington and I want to stay in Newington because my son is in, established in the school uh-huh. system, and uh, but I want to buy a three-family home in New Britain, and I don't plan on living there because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not uprooting my family okay. to move out of my suburb into New Britain. Yep. Um, I can still buy that three-family home, Absolutely. Right? You but, just have to put the bigger down payment. You're going to pay a higher interest rate. And like we're saying, you're going to pay a higher a higher fee overall for that loan because of the degree of risk that's associated with an investment property loan versus a primary home or even a second home loan. Now, I will say- Unless I live there for one year, right? You ha- Yes, yes. Depending on the type of loan. But if you want it owner-occupied, you definitely need to live there for at least one year in one of the units. That's why a common strategy is to get an FHA loan, live there for a year in one of the units, and then after the year, then move on to the next property. Then you can rent it out, but you actually didn't commit mortgage fraud because you said that you were going to live there for a year. You got the favorable terms of someone living there, and then you did live there for a year. So that's obviously recommended. For some people, that may be a great first step because those loans have a much lower down payment. But for someone that already owns a primary home and is looking to expand from there, a lot of the time, like you said, they don't want to uproot their family and whatnot, and they're going to want to buy either a single or multifamily home for an investment purpose. You just got to be prepared. All right. Can you go more in depth, though, on maybe some special considerations that are given to real estate investors when getting a mortgage? Yeah. So reserves are key. We were talking about the fact that what if your tenant doesn't pay you? How are you going to pay the mortgage? Most of the uh, programs are going to require that you have some reserves. Ideally, at least six months of reserves. What are reserves? It's your total obligations that you have on mortgages, property taxes, insurance, and multiplying those over several months. So six months of reserves means that you have basically six months of mortgage payments, property taxes, insurance in the bank somewhere. It can be a retirement fund. It can be cash value life insurance. It can be a money market savings account. Anywhere that's liquid that we can show. I've had actually many clients lately use their 401k for reserves to show that, hey, I've got money here available. I'm not using that money to buy the property, but I've got savings. I've got you know, uh, a, a little bit of a backstop. So know that you want to get that short up before you go into a mortgage situation or at least get with an advisor to find out how much reserve that you need. The lower your credit is, the higher reserves that they're going to want. And speaking of credit, we mentioned stronger credit is pretty much a requirement when you're going to go for that investment property mortgage. Whereas like an FHA loan, I can get people on an owner-occupied down to a 580 or 600 credit score. Nothing in that realm is happening on an investment property property mortgage. You really want to be in that high 600s, low 700s minimum to get a decent program where you're not going to pay through the nose in rates and fees. Um, The other thing is keep in mind, because most people want to ultimately be an experienced investor. Once you have that first property under your belt, once you have a year of tax returns filed showing that you're a landlord, all of a sudden it opens up the realm for your next investment opportunity because once we can show you're an experienced landlord, the agencies, not necessarily a lower rate, but they give you more credit for the rental income as an experienced landlord, which makes it easier to qualify for the next mortgage. However, they don't do that when you're inexperienced, when you have less than one year or no experience as a landlord, you don't get as much credit. So just understand that. And most importantly, make sure that you're filing the rental income on your tax 
tax return because that's how the, the underwriters verify. What about non-qualified DSCR mortgages and, and, and hard money loans? You know, wh- right. wh- where do where do those play a role? Yeah, and these are really popular. I get a lot of questions about these types of loans. These are the really the other end of the spectrum from the type of mortgages we're talking about. What we're concentrating on right now in today's discussion has been conventional mortgages right, through Fannie right. Mae, Freddie Mac. These other loans, non-qualified or non-QM, DSCR, which stands for debt service coverage ratio. That's what DSCR mm-hmm. means. Those are loans where they will qualify just based off the income in the property without looking at your tax returns or anything like that. Hard money loans are usually made by private investors, and those can have really high rates and fees, but even higher than conventional. But where do those play a role if you can't qualify for a regular mortgage? If your credit's too low or you don't have any income on paper or whatever the case may be, maybe you had a bankruptcy a year ago, you're not going to get a conventional mortgage with those scenarios, but there are still lending options and it's these type of loans we're talking about. Just expect that if you're going to get one of these hard money DSCR non-qualified types of mortgages that you're going to have to put even more down. So instead of 20, 25%, you might be talking 30 to 40% down on those. You also need to realize these are short term. Usually you're only going to have a year, a couple years, and then you're going to have to refinance. These are not meant to be long-term mortgages and they have these really high rates and really high fees. I've seen people pay upwards of three or four points on one of these non-qualified types of mortgages or hard money loans because they're allowed to do that. Those loans are not governed by the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So they do have the ability, unfortunately, to take advantage of people in that predicament. Folks, you're listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge podcast. Uh, You can contact Rob Weinberg at 860-413-3938 and check him out uh, online at ConnecticutMortgageLending.com. I'll repeat those points of contact uh, more uh, probably in a few minutes, more towards the end of the show. Uh, along with Rob Weinberg, I'm Gary Byron. Why is right now, right now, Rob, why is this a time to be looking at becoming a real estate investor? Yeah, I think right now is a great time because for the first time in a while, we've actually seen inflation and we've seen rents going up. So that's horrible when you're somebody renting and your landlord tells you that your rent's going from 2000 a month to 2300 a month or more. But as a landlord, think about that. If the tables have turned and you're the landlord and inflation goes up and now you can increase your rent from 2000 to 2300 because of the market and inflation, your mortgage though didn't go up. Your mortgage was locked in. Your mortgage was a fixed rate. So your mortgage stayed the same, yet you're able to increase rent. That's huge. That's why right now is great. And even two or three years ago, you couldn't do that because inflation was not where it is now. People were not increasing rent. And if you tried to do that, the tenant would say, all right, see you later. I'm going next door where I can get a lower rent. Now, supply and demand is crazy with real estate, both on the buying and renting side to where you do have the ability to raise rent. That's why right now is amazing because if if inflation keeps going up, rents will keep going up as well. The other thing is the return on investment right now, even though property prices are high, there are diamonds in the roughs. roughs there are needles in the haystacks here. Okay. You just need the right real estate advisor, the right team to guide you and find that good return on investment. And then the last thing is that the rates are still historically low and they're lower than they're probably going to be in a month or a couple months. Yeah, they're starting so to creep up. Right. So now's a good time to be locking in that low rate money. If they do go down in a year or two, you can always refinance. But at least in the short 
short run, you can get that low rate, which is going to give you more cash flow. And a rental property is going to give you a lot more return and bang for your buck than keeping your money in a savings account or money market where you're probably not even earning 1%. Rob, talk about some of the, I know you've heard about these, these mistakes that you see that some of the first time real estate investors are making in this market. I Yeah, the big one that I see a first time investor make is they get so excited about investing in real estate, getting their first property, that they're in a position where they just, they think with their heart, not with their wallet. <laughs> well, uh, they don't really look at the numbers as close as they could, or they put like a rosy picture on paper of what they think everything's going to be numbers wise, and they don't account for things mm -hmm. um, like vacancies and whatnot. So that would really lead me to the second thing is, even if you're thinking with your wallet correctly and looking at the numbers, as a first time investor, you need to realize that vacancies are a part of property investing. Vacancies are when one of your tenants moves out or doesn't pay, that's a vacancy. That's going to give you a change in your cash flow. You don't want that to put you in a position where you miss a mortgage payment or God forbid, you know, something like that that would harm your credit. So when you're actually running your numbers as a first time investor, factor in at least 25% for vacancies, maybe even more depending on your market. You want to also understand that real estate is going to have maintenance and repairs. Factor that in, get an inspection and make sure that you look at it to figure out what repairs may be needed and budget that in. And then the maintenance that's required. The just general upkeep of the property needs to be factored in. Some people don't even get an inspection at all on the property, which I think is a big no-no right now, especially on an older home. You want to make sure you're not only getting the inspection, oh, but boy. really looking at it, reviewing it with your real estate pro and renegotiating it if necessary to get those things taken care of that need to be uh, that need to be done. Don't do a home flip with no experience no, because know, that but... is definitely something that people see quick money or hear about it. But almost all the time, it ends up being a disaster. It just sounds like a lot to handle, Rob. Are there any other more passive ways to invest in real estate? Or... There are. There are. And it's actually one of my specialties is passive real estate investing because <laughs> I do own a couple properties, both commercial and residential throughout the United States. Also, um, you know, some uh, investment funds that I'm involved in that have like hotels and apartment buildings. But I don't manage those. Those are passive. So how do you do that? How do you get into that position? So years ago, I started hearing about like crowdfunding and different investment trusts and things where you could invest passively like a stock or a mutual fund where you don't have to be involved in the day to day. So the two ideas that I'll give everyone there is going to be REITs, real estate investment trusts and private real estate funds. couple websites are realtymogul.com has two great real estate investment trusts and uh, fundrise.com. Okay. Those are great ones. Okay. Also, I'll give you American Homeowner Preservation, which is a company that buys distressed mortgages. They pay 7 and 8% returns. Mm. AHPfund.com. Again, American Homeowner Preservation. And the last couple I'll give you if you're an accredited investor, meaning that you make over 250000 a year or have a million-dollar net worth or greater, you can get involved with Fund That Flip, fundthatflip.com, where they give money to experienced home flippers, mm -hmm. and you can share in the returns there. Crowdstreet.com, which is phenomenal, has a ton of stuff. And last but not least, realcrowd.com. All right. Listen, I, I'm running out of time. I really want to ask you one more question, but if you can get it answered in, in okay. less, less than a minute, just maybe a quick example of first-time investor deals that you have worked on and, and how they got the funds to facilitate buying a property. Yeah. So I actually have a client I've worked with a few times down in New London. He was trying to make this happen for a while, and I gave him some ideas. He ended up taking a 401k loan for the down payment, the 25% down on his force 
first four unit property. He did that last year mm -hmm. and he actually since then he paid the loan back and now he's buying his next property. <laughs> so like great. there's a great one. And uh, and also side note, he took out a line of credit on that property he bought last year. So now he has even more money at his disposal. Another one is a client I mentioned in last week's show. Actually, he did a cash out refi on his home, gave it to his friend who did home flips and got a 30 percent return on that money in one year. And wow. he borrowed it at only four percent. So that's a great one. And the last one is a gentleman in uh, oh, East Hartford, actually a listener of the show here that did a cash out refi in his primary home at the end of last year. And he put it down on a home just a few weeks ago, his first investment property. And it was all made possible because of this show, because of these oh, strategies. That's great. Folks, if you like more information on this, I can't say I blame you. Check out the website at ConnecticutMortgageLending.com. Once again, it's ConnecticutMortgageLending.com. I always say start there. If you've got a question uh, that pertains to this radio show, uh, the easy way to get your question answered is to simply email us at MortgageMattersRadioShow at gmail.com. Again, if you've got the question, I'm sure others have thought the same question, uh, generally speaking, that... Who knows? You could get your answer. Uh, you can get your your question answered as soon as next week's show, right? Mortgage mm -hmm. Matters Radio Show at gmail.com. And if you've got something that's more of a personal nature, maybe you want to set up a meeting with Rob, write this phone number down. It's 860-413-3938. Once again, 860-413-3938. For Rob Weinberg, I'm Gary Byron. Thank you so much for listening to Mortgage Matters Radio Show and the Connecticut Real Estate Edge podcast. Until next week, have a good one, everybody. So long. Thanks for listening. If you have questions about the information we've covered or would like to discuss mortgage financing for your situation, you can reach Robert Weinberg by visiting www.robgw.com.